This is the Jay's Journal Podcast, episode 76. I'm your host as always, Ari Shapiro. I want to thank you for tuning in as I broadcast live here from arishapiro.ca. Be sure to take a moment, subscribe to my website, and you'll get all of these episodes of the Jay's Journal along with my various different blogs and literary pursuits and audio efforts, including other award-winning podcasts. It'd be a pleasure to have you aboard. You can sign up at arishapiro.ca. Now, I haven't been on the air for quite a while, and it's a pleasure to be back with you because I have a phenomenal show, a star-studded show, if you will. We have some of our panelists from the upcoming Women at Bat baseball event from She's 4 Sports and the Jays Journal. And this is an opportunity for you to get a little closer and personal to understanding what motivates and drives some of the most influential and inspirational women in the game of baseball. Following that, I've got veteran TSN sportscaster and one of my favorite people in the business, Tony Ambrosio, drops in to talk with me about the 25th anniversary of your 92-93 World Series Blue Jays, whom I had a chance to see up close and personal this past weekend. A lot of emotions, a lot of memories, a lot of thick, sickly, powerful nostalgia that just won't go away. And pretty much everyone went home happy, except for the outcome, of course. The Blue Jays will never do well against the Tampa Bay Rays. The sooner you are able to accept this, I think the better off you'll be. And then to close off the show, I've got another one of my classic roundtables, and this one is truly one to stick around and wait for because it'll keep you entertained to no end. Not only have I got April Weitzman, the former digital marketing manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, on this table, but she's joined by a research analyst and market aficionado Marshall Auerbach from the Levy Institute, as well as professional comedian and number one Blue Jays fan Brian Hatt, who also has an excellent podcast, I might add, called Chatting Practice. He sits down at the table to keep things light during a time of some pretty heavy nostalgia, to say the least. So buckle up, get comfortable, grab yourself a drink, and get ready for this episode of The Baseball Show. Folks, don't forget to buy your tickets for the upcoming She's Four Sports and Jay's Journal baseball event called Women at Bat, which takes place on August the 22nd at 6 o'clock at the Rogers Center. This is really something special, and I've gone ahead and taken the time to make sure that we could hear from some of our panelists that will be featured at this wonderful event, as well as Ainka Jess, the founder and CEO of She's for Sports. This is an opportunity for you to come out and understand why there are some individuals in society who are so passionate about the game of baseball, and why the ones who are women in particular finally have an opportunity to have their voices heard at a, in a panel format, at an event that really highlights why baseball is so important, not only to men, but women. And, you know, this is really important. This was a cause I felt I needed to be involved with. And the reason I'm calling it a cause is because it requires organization, focus, and opportunity. And to be able to bring you this kind of event, which is really the, the marketing and and organizational brainchild of Ainka Jess, who we'll hear more from later, this is really something special, and I definitely urge you to go out and get your ticket before we're sold out. You've still got time before next Wednesday. Let's take a closer look now at some of the panelists that will be there. And, and here's Donna Bookman, the CEO of Toronto Girls Baseball and the Canadian Women's Baseball Association. I quickly spoke with her earlier in the week and asked her why baseball has been so inspirational in her life, what, what really inspired her to get started in becoming a true entrepreneur and growing the game at the grassroots level, and why being part of the Women at Bad event is important to her. 
Here's what she had to say. Well, I would say that baseball um, didn't inspire me as a young girl. I wasn't a baseball player. It's actually my daughter who is a baseball player and has been since she was a little tiny pot. And she's the one who inspired me to pick up the baseball torch and carry it by creating a baseball league for her. And little did I know that so many other girls also wanted a place to play where they could feel comfortable. And since then, I've seen what baseball does for girls in terms of their confidence and their leadership skills. And I have become a huge baseball fan for what it does for kids and for adults and for physical health and for teamwork and all of the great things they get out of it. I think that baseball as a sport creates resilience more than any other sport. I see it in my son and in my daughter. It's one of the only sports that you have to get up in front of a group of people who are your friends and your family and you have to fail and you have to do it over and over again and you have to be willing to get up there. So it creates resilience. And then your teammates have to be there for you and that creates empathy. And it creates a family, I think, in a different way than other team sports do. And for me, that example of getting up there and failing and trying stuff, um, it does create confidence. And I see it in our programs that we run. Every season we run something, I can actually watch a child change through the course of the weeks that we run the program. And I see it in my own daughter, how she was prepared to quit baseball altogether and sticking to the sport has grown her confidence. She just won a huge tournament and, you know, she has these friends which have become a family and, you know, she got up there and there were plays that she missed and plays that she made and she owned it all. And I mean, for a young kid, that's a huge deal. And as they get older, I think they carry those skills with them. So I think it's the best sport out there for that. I'm really excited to be part of this panel. I think that um, creating awareness is something that's needed on so many different levels. I mean, we have parents who are so supportive of their daughters and want them to play baseball, but they aren't even aware of their own biases when it comes to baseball. We have national women's team players throwing the ball around and parents saying they don't throw like girls. I mean, we really have to change the whole dynamic about girls in sports. One of the things we do is have all-female umpires in our program. Um, so it's nice to be on this panel where girls will be able to see and parents and people will be able to see that girls can be any part of this game. They can be on the field as a coach, as an ump, as a baseball player. They can be behind the scenes. I mean, this is a great piece to be a part of because it's going to show all of those aspects of the sport and what it can bring to girls on all the different levels. Next, I had the great fortune of being able to speak to the former digital marketing manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, April Weitzman, who's now with Rover in their growth and partnership department and is one of those amazing human beings who focuses on helping sports teams, app developers, brands, try to create more engaging mobile content. She literally is involved in, in looking at media from both a traditional and digital sense that has changed the way women and girls have looked at the sport of baseball. I asked April why baseball was so important in her life. 
Yeah, baseball was always important. Uh, as a as a little little girl, baseball was a way to connect with my dad on the couch and and eat cotton candy. But as I grew up, that passion grew to wanting to play the game. And growing up in rural New Brunswick, we didn't have a girls' baseball team. So the first day my mom let me go get my hair cut, uh, I got a mushroom cut, and I wanted to be called Jake and go join the guys' team. Uh, fortunately, they let me join as April. And uh, I was the only girl on the, the guys' baseball team for years. Um, eventually, I'll be honest, uh, I couldn't catch up with those fastballs and I grew a passion for writing about the game and still still continuing to watch the game on the couch with my dad but really grew a passion for the analytics side for the fan side for every day baseball was different every time you watch it something you'll never predict will happen and and that's why it's so exciting and that's why it continues to be so yeah I moved halfway I did seven years of post-secondary education, told my parents that I was pursuing this dream to work in baseball, Uh, took an unpaid internship after having $70,000 in debt, moved to London, Ontario to work for a baseball team, spent most of the time as the mascot, uh, and then the team folded halfway through the season, and then I thought the baseball dream was dead. Sure enough, it wasn't, and as you know, I then went on to work for Major League Baseball and in the, the MLB fan cave in New York and, and later got to live the dream that I never thought was possible by working as the digital marketing manager for the Blue Jays. So now that that's over, I, I'm so thankful to go back to being a fan and, and still spending those nights on the couch with my dad watching the game. Yeah, I mean, it's humbling. It's an honor. The the panelists on that I'm going to be sitting next to are unbelievable in the sport as well. So it means a lot to be able to have younger women and women and even individuals in general to be there to hear us speak. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I can't say enough how honored I am, and I'm really looking forward to it. Next, I turn my attention to Alexis Brudnicki, the Director of Baseball Information at the Great Lake Canadians Baseball Club, who, aside from being an award-winning writer, business executive, and a former statistician for the Toronto Blue Jays, Her love of the game really resonates in everything she does with her affiliations and the people that she surrounds herself with, and so it was incumbent upon me to ask her a really simple question. What is it about the game of baseball? Why this sport in particular that has had an impact on her life and motivated to get her involved at the grassroots level? And I asked her, why baseball? What was it that inspired her about this sport that has made her so active in the game and why it's important for her to be part of this upcoming event? I think baseball has completely changed for me in terms of just providing opportunities, helping me to learn and kind of understand that it's an avenue for so much more than just watching baseball players. I played when I was younger, and it was something where my parents were just taking my little brother to sign up for a league and I kind of said why can't I play and I think that philosophy along with the attitude of my parents who were just kind of like sure you can why can't you Uh, I think that's really kind of followed me throughout my whole life and certainly my life in baseball 
I never foresaw that I would turn the game that I love into some sort of career, whether that's considered successful uh, financially or rewarding or any anything like that. But I just kind of never even thought that it was something I would pursue. And baseball has given me so many more reasons to love the game, so many more reasons to hate certain things about the game, and so much opportunity for growth personally and to try and develop something that affects other people as much as it has affected me. And I really think that every time I have kind of been disappointed in the game or I haven't been able to do certain things that I hoped I would be able to do or where I've come to a crossroads, the game has kind of found a way to push me past those negative moments and provide something beautiful and something great. I've been fortunate enough to get to travel the world because of the game. I've been to Japan with Baseball Canada as the women's national team press officer. I've been to multiple World Baseball Classics in Arizona and Miami. I've been to Australia on four different occasions to work in the Australian Baseball League. I've been able to see and cover the Pan Am Games on home soil, see the men's national team win a gold medal, see the women's national team win a silver medal for their first time in a multi-sport event ever, which was just a really exciting thing on its own, let alone the silver medal. I've been really fortunate to meet so many great people in the game and I think that those great people stand out more because I've also met some people who are not so great in the game, some people who are resistant to change, uh, some people who are bound in tradition, some people who just have a perception of what the game looks like and I'm encouraged by the idea that that is not what it has to be and I think that the great people I've met are the ones that have helped me realize that. Um, Among the many, many, many great people and organizations uh, who have helped me along the way, I do think that the Canadian baseball community in its many forms, um, with the Great Lake Canadians who I work for now, with Baseball Canada, with the Canadian Baseball Network, has really given me a home and a place where I felt like I belonged in baseball. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. The Canadian baseball community is so small and tight-knit and so special to me, especially because it really did make me realize that baseball was something that I could stick to, something that I could believe in, a place where I felt like I belonged when I didn't feel like I belonged in some other baseball spaces. And I think that it's really helped me grow and continue and persevere and learn so many life lessons through the game because of that acceptance. And I am just so grateful to have learned so much from the game. And I just hope to continue to be part of it for a really long time. I am so excited to be a part of the Women at Bat event. It is an honor and a privilege to be a part of the panel. 
first and foremost, because this is the first all-female panel that I've heard of in Canada, uh, all-female baseball panel, that is, and to have so many great women involved is just so special to me. I have seen female baseball panels in the States. I was a part of a sports panel in Georgia, and it is so inspiring to be around a group of women who understand what other women have gone through, who understand that our ideas and our thoughts on the game are unique, but they're not necessarily even new, but when we can get together and talk about them, that's what's really special. When we can share together, when we can grow and learn from each other, it's really special. And there is not always the opportunity to do that in the game. I've been fortunate to be around some great men who have helped me to learn, who have helped me to grow and there's always just a lack of understanding of the perception of what it is to be a woman in a male-dominated industry. And I think to even just share thoughts, share ideas, to celebrate together and to commiserate together is something that is so needed and so underrated. And to have this panel to hear from the wonderful people on it, I'm interested in hearing and learning from them and growing those relationships with them and in sharing with our audience. I have always, always in my career had so many questions and maybe that's why journalism was a natural fit for me. But I think there are so many other people who are not completely unlike me where there are so many questions and maybe we can answer some of them. Maybe we can look at them together. Maybe we can learn from everyone around us. And I think that having this panel is an exciting opportunity and just something that is really necessary to understand that this is still a discussion about baseball. This is still something that will offer insight to the game that you don't get anywhere else. And this is still something that is valuable to everyone in attendance. And because it's all women, I think that just makes it even more special and doesn't take anything away from the experience, the knowledge, the ideas. It just makes it even better. And finally, I spoke with Ayinka Jess, the founder and CEO of She's for Sports, who's become a close personal friend and I needed to better understand what was driving her, what kind of passion was she feeling from the game of baseball, and why it was so important for her organization to be front and center at such a seminal event across the city. You know, this is a great question because I uh, this weekend I attended the uh, the Blue Jays game on on Saturday, and obviously they were commemorating the 25th anniversary of the back-to-back World Series championships and it reminded me of being in school and I had a great teacher um, who said you know what where I'm going to take my class down to to celebrate you know in the city of Toronto celebrate their the 93 win and I remember you know I don't remember all the details because it's a while ago and I don't want to date myself but I remember going downtown I remember feeling the the celebration on you know on the streets uh, near the Sky Dome. I'm going to say Sky Dome now. I know it's something else. It's Rogers Center, but um, you know, let's say Sky Dome. And just that electric feeling of community, of 
a city that was, you know, uh, thirsty and just wanting a, a, a World Series championship. And just, you know, remember Joe Carter jumping up and down and seeing all the highlights and the clips. But just, you know, that feeling of our, our class going down there and really celebrating and taking this in. You know, Toronto is a great um, sports city and, and baseball, you know, Everywhere you go, you see people in Blue Jays hats. I used to live in Ottawa for a couple of years, and people there were wearing uh, Blue Jays hats because it really is the, the Canada's team, and you feel that. You feel that sense of community. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, the Jays haven't been doing that great in the last two seasons, and uh, I think fans are are, are – are looking for that that rebirth, that that fresh team again. You know, I know we're acquiring some new players and and hoping that the Jays will be able to get back to that level. Um, you know, hopefully in 2020 and 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 beyond. But you know, you go to the games now and people are decked out in the gear. They're buying their popcorn. They're watching their favorite players. They're they're you know watching them when they have to do when their their walkout uh, you know music comes on. Toronto fans are, are very loyal people, and and they they do well when their teams are thriving. So I think that's the feeling I get when I think about uh, the, the the Blue Jays. It, it's, it's just that family community feeling, um, you know, great players when they're in great shape and healthy, and just a team that you know when we're winning, we're all on a high. And I think the city's on a high too when when the Blue Jays are winning. You know, I think uh, women in bats going to be really exciting. We have four talented women who are contributing to baseball in many ways, in great ways, uh, through their careers. You know, one, obviously, Nikki Huffman is the first female head athletic trainer for the Blue Jays, and I believe the second woman with that role across the four major uh, sports. Uh, and, you know, it, it's exciting to, to hear her career journey, um, to, to hear about her thoughts as well with a, with a struggling, uh, you know, Blue Jays lineup that have, that's been plagued with lots of injuries um, and how she's helping them to, to overcome that and helping to get the players out there and healthy again. You know, we've got uh, April Weitzman talking about digital marketing and engaging fans, um, you know, through through social media, through, you know, other marketing uh, tactics to really expand on what, uh, you know, the Blue Jays are doing to really attract female fans and, and, and to encourage them to engage in the sport. Um, you know, we've got... Uh, many other voices that that are going to be there. That, as I said, they work in different areas of sports. They, they themselves are passionate about baseball. You know, Dana Bookman started her own uh, girls baseball league because her daughter was looking for a league to play in, and she saw that gap, and she she just started uh, a league. You know, there's a lot of grassroots initiatives going on, and Alexis Brignicki, who has a wealth of experience in baseball, you know, um, doing various things. You know, uh, at one point, I think I, I was reading that she was also um, working on the scoreboard, you know, with the Blue Jays. And then she was, you know, a writer for baseball and uh, had gone overseas to work at, in different baseball programs and, you know, has a wealth of knowledge in the sport. So I, I cannot wait to hear from these talented women, as I said, and, and just to engage and ask some questions. You know, we've got a lot of people on social media saying, can, can I bring my daughter? You know, there was a guy that DM'd me on Twitter, can I bring my daughter? And I, I'm happy that, uh, you know, people are wanting to bring their kids to, to see these women, you know, I think a lot of parents also are looking for role models for their kids and, you know, just um, showing their daughters that, you know, this is a viable, these are viable careers. Like women can have these careers in sport and I think we should know their names and I'm hoping Shoes for Sports with Women at Bat will continue to be that catalyst to make sure people know who these women are and champion their 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 uh, their career highlights, champion them as, as, as women and, and just showcase them as you know, people who, as I said, are contributing to sports in great ways. 
So there you have it, folks. From launching podcasts to starting baseball leagues for girls and making history throughout their careers, women in baseball are using their platforms to really challenge the stereotypes while engaging you, the fan, in new and creative ways. And with their influential voices, while they're creating these opportunities to encourage participation and to thrive in one of North America's oldest and most revered sports, it's a welcome thing indeed to have She's Four Sports and the Jays Journal combine forces to bring you the Women at Bat Baseball Panel event on August the 22nd. Be sure to get your ticket. You can find it off of reshapiro.ca as well as she's4sports.com. We hope to see you out there. I'll be personally in attendance myself, so why don't you drop by? We might have an opportunity to chat a little bit about this wonderful game of baseball and how it's impacted your life on a day-to-day basis. So right now I'm exceptionally pleased to be joined by veteran TSN sportscaster and mentor to many aspiring journalists across Ontario, Tony Ambrosio is on the baseball show. Tony, appreciate having you back here on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for the beautiful introduction. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, Ari. I really enjoy it. Well, I'm, I'm inspired to give you that introduction because we're celebrating an anniversary here in the city, aren't we? Yeah. We're, uh, tomorrow will mark the, uh, the opportunity for Blue Jays fans to go visit with scores of their glory years, legends of Blue Jays that, uh, that captured a World Series 25 years ago and changed the way this city really looks at baseball legitimized it, I think you would even agree. But my question to you that's been lingering in my head is that how should new and younger fans look at that era when we consider the sheer amount of time? Because, you know, I love, I love me anniversaries. They're important. They define, <laughs> right. they define how we relate to each other as people. But isn't there something equally as inspiring as there is profoundly sad in knowing that it's been 25 years since that last World Series championship? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's, it's it's inspiring but profoundly sad that it's been 25 years. And while the Jays had great success in 15 and 16, they were wild card teams. Well, sorry, the 16 team was mm-hmm. a wild card team. So, you know, they weren't quite as I don't think as strong as powerful as the '92 and in this case the '93 Blue Jays. And, and, and I think too at that time, Ari, the Jays were big money spenders. They were a big market team that acted like a big market team. Whereas today, there's a sense from some, whether it's fair or not, that the Blue Jays of 2018 are a big market team that does not act like a big market team. And I think that's where the 93 Blue Jays resonate with so many people. A, they won a World Series. B, they were so dynamic offensively. Uh, see, they had great star quality players: Alomar, Olerud, Carter, Molitor, Pat Henkin, you know, Dwayne Ward. Those kind of iconic figures that were part of the organization and that were key figures for not only '93 but in past years. But I think there is a sense that, geez, I really, really wish the '18 Blue Jays had that 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 confidence that big market swagger both in the front office and on the field that the 93 Blue Jays had. It's amazing to think of the number of storylines that existed for that <laughs> year, the the various yeah. different narratives. It was almost cinematic. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? I mean, you had, as you mentioned, you had players like Paul Molitor, uh, yeah. a, a perennial Blue Jays nemesis who replaces yet another Blue Jays 
mercenary in Dave Winfield and proceeds to finish in the top three in hitting a team that had the top three hitters in the American League, which I think we will never see again, or at least if we will, it'll be in maybe another hundred years of baseball. Uh, you had the fact that Tony Fernandez, the old, the old faithful, the old legend returning after that massive trade that made them competitive and being able to contribute. Dwayne Ward with his magical armed with, with power from the baseball God's arm, seemingly completely unstoppable. You, you had so many different storylines that made you look at this team was there almost many, maybe too many that spoiled us, especially considering that the following year there was a strike, and after that it seemed like all of the magic of that era just seemed to gradually whittle away from underneath our nose? Yeah, yeah, that, that's so true, isn't it? I mean, you had the magic of 92, you had more magic in 93, and, and, and I think, and I certainly am not an expert, you probably would be better at this than I would, but I think the 92 team is considered the stronger of the two, although the 93 team offensively was so, so dynamic. And you talk about the top three hitters being Blue Jays. I mean, not even this year's Red Sox can say that. And the Red Sox are a dynamic offensive team. So you're right. This could be a once in not only a generation, but a once in a lifetime type of team that wins a World Series with the top three hitters in their respective league. And, uh, you know, they got Paul Molitor as a free agent. It wasn't a trade. Paul Molitor chose Toronto as a free agent because they offered him the most money because they went after him. And I go back to what I said earlier. It was a big market team acting like a big market, confident, full of swagger, Mm -hmm. lots of money team. And after 93 and then 94, we saw what happened. And then the Blue Jays, that big market swagger left. And it really hasn't quite returned. And I think, you know, and I know it's probably an odd way to look at the 93 team, but that's what I think of when I think of the 93 team. I think of swagger, confidence, both on the diamond, but in the front office and in ownership as well. And, And it was so very potent. Wasn't it, Tony? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. That that swagger, that that go for the kill mentality of going after and recruiting all the various different Blue Jays villains, all those storylines being closed when it was clear that the Ricky Hendersons and the Jack Morrises and the Dave Stewarts of the world would simply not allow the Blue Jays to prevail. So, if you can't beat them, you get them to join you. You sign them for big exactly. And that yeah. seemed to be the calling card of the Beeston Gillick era, which is interesting yeah. because even even in the later part of the decade, Gord Ash, the understudy, the one trying to show the fans here that he could be like his mentors, tried the big moves. You know, we, we had Roger Clemens here. We had Frank Thomas yeah. here, Jose Canseco. But unfortunately, that, that seemed to be done, wouldn't you agree, more out of desperation, whereas Gillick and Beeston knew they were good enough and reputable enough and credible enough to show the fans they could do it. So they went out, they became the the top spending team in baseball and never looked back. Yeah, and I think desperation for the post-93 teams is a good way to describe some of the moves that they made, especially in free agency. I never got that desperation mindset from the 93 Blue Jays. And and that was a magical October because you had the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I'm sorry, i got to go back to hockey, but the Toronto Maple Leafs that year started an NHL record 10-0. and But that was on the back pages 
because the Blue Jays are going for a second straight World Series because this team was so good, so powerful, so likable that they really brushed aside a really good Maple Leaf start to page six, page seven of the sports pages. And again, it tells you just how powerful, how strong, how iconic this 1993 Blue Jays team was. And, and it, you know, it, it's funny because we think of Joe Carter, but the key players on this team, John Olerud, 24. Roberto Alomar was 25. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. two players, you could make the argument, the two key players, and, you know, with all due respect to the others, were in the mid-20s, really hadn't even reached their prime yet. That's how good they were. That's how good this team was in 93. And, you know, you mentioned the guys they got. I mean, I don't think Jack Morris was on the playoff roster because he struggled in 93. That's that's right. And and Ricky Henderson, great acquisition. But did he really, really have great success in Toronto? You can make the argument it was a below-average Ricky Henderson in Toronto. But it didn't matter. They still won the World Series. That's how good they were. That's right. It's uh, it's astonishing to think that it would be easy to be critical of those big free agent acquisitions that didn't pan out or the trades yeah. that were made. You know, you still hear lingering criticism of getting two and a half months of David Cohn in exchange for a 15-year MVP caliber career Jeff Kent, of yeah. Jeff Kent. So, so it's interesting to see just how audacious this that yeah. front office back then was prepared to be. In your opinion, Tony, what does this front office need to do during these next few months where so much is about the future to try yeah. to create some credibility with fans that they have what it takes and that when there is a chance to pull the trigger to be a great team, they'll do it. What do they have to do, in your opinion, for that to happen? Boy, that, you know what? That is a tremendous question because I'm not sure if, like, part of me thinks they've got to go out and try to get a player or two who will be better than Vladdy? Because we all think Vladdy will be on the team next year sometime. And you could make the argument, the way things look now, a 19-, 20-year-old Vladimir Guerrero could be the best player on your team. So I wonder if it's imperative on this team, on this front office, to give him some protection. Get a guy who can take some of the attention away from them without mortgaging the future. And that might mean going and being bold in free agency, or making creative trades. So I want to see this front office show me that they're not so much only about the future, Ari, but about winning in the future. That's what I want to see from this front office. Because you can talk about prospects until you're blue in the face, but you know much more than I do that not every prospect will pan out. So you've got to make moves with for players, that can play now and contribute and contribute in the future as well. That's what I want to see this front office show me that swagger, show me that boldness, show me that confidence that we saw 25 years ago. It's it's something that would be like rediscovering the fountain of youth, I think, for fans. Yeah, because absolutely. Because feeling old and worn out from what's been... Yeah. Uh, administration after administration, you know, putting aside the, the horrific interbrew years and ignoring mm-hmm. the fact that VP Richardi kept hitting the reboot button every year and a half, it seemed. Yeah. And of course, Alex, Alex himself had a five-year plan that really turned out to be nothing more than a two and a half 
month equivalent to save his entire job, only to then willingly leave it um, yeah. voluntarily. Yeah. So, so do you think the next few years will spell at least the kind of consistency or stability that fans are looking for in having the kind of front office that can look at this gathering this weekend and say, look at this adoration, right? Look, look at this... Yeah. Look at this love of the brand and the team. What mm-hmm. are we doing mm-hmm. to secure and value their loyalty? Because it's fleeting. It really is. And, and this team understands yeah. that. Baseball has always been a meritocracy around these parts. If you don't win, you don't put fans in the seats. Yeah. Or, or And I think it's not only winning. It's showing that you want to win. Like, I understand what they're doing now with the with the prospects and the rebuild. That's great. You need your own players to really be part of the – like, that's what happened in 85, 87, 89, 91, 92. Like, like we talk about 93, Ari, but really, that was a 10-year process. From 83 to 93, building their prospects, using some of their homegrown talent, making some free agent pitches. And, and I, know, I know the change team the, the team changed from 85 to 93, but there were a lot of very familiar names and homegrown players. And, and I want to see this organization – Try to echo that, emulate that. Not only try to be good for a year or two or three, but try to make this a decade of excellence. And I think if they are serious, serious about that, the fans will continue to support the team, will continue to support this front office, and and I think will go to the games, will show up at the games. Um, but you've got to – you said it, Ari – you got to give them something to cheer about. And, you, and, and I think they've got to show that they're serious about winning. You know, and, and, and I know it's not easy. They suppose, I mean, four years ago, Baltimore and Kansas City were in the ALCS. Mm-hmm. Four years ago is not that far enough, not that far away. And here we are four years later, they're the two worst teams in the American League. And, and not just the two worst teams, Tony. But, Terrible. But like, they don't you, have much of it in the way of prospects. Exactly. They don't have much yeah. money in terms of uh, farm assets, nor do they have the confidence of fans who understand that they've yeah. been ruthlessly taken advantage of. And, and I think that's why you would agree maybe some of the cynicism for the Blue Jays uh, bubbled over the way it did. Because really, aside from that uh, memorable 53-day run of 2015 division-winning baseball, 2016 was a rough year that required a boneheaded move from Buck Showalter to basically lay the red carpet for the Blue Jays to play in the ALCS. Mm-hmm. 2017 mm-hmm. was an unmitigated disaster. 2018, yep. some are arguing, is even worse. So really, if you look at, at, at Baltimore, you look at Kansas City, you take a look at the Blue Jays, I agree with you. It's incumbent to, for this front office to find a way to instill that confidence back in the fans. You do not want yeah, a I- year of baseball lamentation like this. Yeah, and, and you know what I think too hurts this this front office that when you listen to them speak, a they sound like robots. B it's all corporate speak, and C I don't get a sense that they're speaking from the heart, but speaking from a corporate handbook. I, you know they they just sound so robotic. It reminds Pretty me of John Farrell. Generic. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I never. I, I don't know what kind of manager John Farrell was, but he certainly never appeared to me to be a human. Because every time he spoke, I just no. felt like he he was you know reading from an auto manual, you know, from the warranty guide of an auto, auto manual. Yeah. 
You he know? came so, across as synthetic, not authentic. Yes, yes. Prepared and uh, telegraphed almost, you know. And and that's what I think of this front office when I hear them speak. Very corporate, very not authentic, almost robotic, and and fans. That's why I think in part they love Paul Beeston and, and Alex Anthopoulos because, yeah, they made mistakes, but at least they sounded like you and I. You know, at least they sounded sincere and authentic and real. And that's what I've, I've these guys don't sound real. Whether whether that's fair of me to say or not, that's my impression. So that's interesting. Let me let me wrap our segment up by asking you then what to do with John Gibbons because over the last few weeks in particular, there's been this renaissance of opinion that maybe having a manager that's respected by the players and the fans, for the most part, I'm not ruling out the, the haters out there, there are plenty of anti-John Gibbons trolls uh, sure. uh, aplenty, but I'm wondering, would you consider giving John Gibbons, if he wanted the opportunity and the club could leverage having a, you know, a value-oriented manager that you don't have to pay five, $6 million a year, would you consider him as someone who can help this next plethora of youth, this cavalcade of raw elements that need to be molded and learn about the importance of competitive baseball. Is he the guy can do it, or would you go with a a fresh, clean slate? You know what? I think he's a guy that can do it, but I understand why Mr. Atkins and Mr. Shapiro may feel differently. I will say this. People seem to forget that when the Kansas City Royals were kind of building up to 14 and 15, John Gibbons was a bench coach. He was he was mm-hmm. part of that team. He was part of the you know part of the coaching staff that mentored the Lorenzo Canes, the Alex Gordons, the Mike Mustakases. You know he he kind of when people say he can't deal with young players, I just I just shake my head and, and say I don't think that's entirely accurate or fair. Now should he be given a chance to move forward in 2019 with his team? Yes, I think he should. But having said that, I understand why the management may not want to. You look at the New York Yankees. George Girardi had a long run. They removed him this year. Aaron Boone came in, fresh face, a lot of new players. Alex Cora replaces John Farrell, and we've seen what's happened in Boston. Maybe when you have a younger team, maybe it is important to have a younger, almost at the same age as some of the older players, as a manager, a guy who played the game most recently, and a guy who's big on analytics and big on numbers and, and big on treating players. And maybe you need someone who can speak Spanish because it's going to have players like Vladi and a lot of Latino-speaking players. So I'm kind of, I guess, if I sound wishy-washy on this, I am, because I really can see a case being made for both sides. But my final assessment is if Gibbons would like the opportunity to come back in 2019, I think he should be given that opportunity. Well, there's nothing wishy-washy about making a complaint <laughs> case that uh, Tony Ambrosio should be the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> because I'm sure a lot of people will listen to you and appreciate how candid you are. And, and you're absolutely right. You, you need to address the fact that there's a sizable uh, Latin contingent of players that uh, that don't speak English as their first language. So yeah. I agree with you. There's, yeah. there's a lot of things that need to be considered. Tony, give my audience a, a quick shout-out on what you've been working on and how they can find you on social media. Sure, sure. I do a lot of work in the TSN TV newsroom. I do the odd hosting on TSN 1050 radio. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Ambrosio. And... Um, 
Really, really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you, Ari. Always find our discussions compelling and interesting, and and I always find your questions really thought-provoking. So thanks for uh, continuously challenging me. I appreciate it. Well, all this flattery will get you on the hockey show, which will be running. (laughs) Which which is one of the reasons why I didn't want you to apologize for bringing up hockey, because quite frankly, we're, what, about 45, 48 days away from the start of the season, and I'm already getting... Getting direct messages like "Please don't stop the baseball show while hockey's going on," and I, of course, am oh, thinking here and thinking maybe, maybe I won't. We'll see. But, but this is great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and and being so, so straightforward and honest and authentic, which is what this whole show will be about: the importance of authenticity. Thanks again, Tony Ambrosio, veteran TSN sportscaster, one of the finest people in the industry. Thank you for dropping by the Jay's Journal podcast. My pleasure, Ari. Anytime. Thank you. And here joining me on this episode of the Jay's Journal Roundtable is a tremendous triumvirate. First, a comic, an actor, and host of the Chatting Practice podcast, Brian Hatt is here. Mr. Hatt, pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. And next, we have a market analyst and research associate at the Levy Institute, the ever-popular recurring guest, Marshall Auerbach. Well, it's always nice to be with you, Ari. And as a special surprise, at the last possible moment, this individual has been able to join us. She is the former digital marketing manager with the Toronto Blue Jays. It's my great pleasure to have April Weitzman on the show. April, thank you for dropping in. Thank you for having me. So let's turn our attention to why I've gathered the three of you here. Uh, I don't know why, but suddenly I had a flashback to the Fortress of Solitude. I'm Superman. You three are Kryptonians. And we're going to talk about the 1993 World Series winning Toronto Blue Jays, a team that 25 years ago changed the way that we looked at baseball in the city. But I want to ask the obvious question on my mind, and I want to start with you, April. Is there such a thing as too much nostalgia, considering that this is the 25th anniversary, and it's hard to believe that since then very little has happened to make fans feel like there's a winning tradition here in the city? No, I mean, definitely not. And you kind of nailed it on the head. Like, fans want to be able to reminisce the great moments. Um, For those of us that were around then, that was the pivotal moment of what epitomized Blue Jays baseball. Until Bautista's botch flip, you know, that's this generation's, you know, 1993 was the botch flip, and there wasn't even a World Series ring then. So, uh, no, you can never have too much. I love to reminisce. I was just a, a young girl on the couch with my father, and some of the best memories of, of that of that whole season. So, uh, no, definitely not. Let's reminisce every day if we can. Gentlemen, any comments about that? Do you think that we're spending too much time looking at the past rather than talking about the future? <laughs> well, I, I second everything that April said. I wish we had a, a few more uh, good times in between to uh, um Reminisce, but you know what? It's a 25-year anniversary of that team, and um, it was a great team. It was a great era, and um, there's nothing wrong with uh, celebrating your past. I mean, you know, God knows we we we've done it enough historically uh, with the uh, the hockey team. Um, but uh, and 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 I think a key points in history that they're worth they're worth commemorating. So I can't see anything that's objectionable about it, uh, and it, and it reminds people that. You know what the city was like uh, when it when it truly was a baseball town, and uh, I think that's something that shows the potential that still exists that you could, uh, w- with regard to the market, um, 
in, in a way that uh, very few other events can do. <laughs> Makes me sound beautiful, Ari. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? You know, when you have a 25-year gap in uh, in your your winning percentage as far as World Series championships go, you got to do something, you know, to promote the good time. You know, keep people interested and uh, you know, push those jerseys, sell those bobbleheads, man. 25 years. If that's all we got, you got you got to sell the shit out of it man, because uh, you know I've been a Blue Jays fan for 39 years, and I'm you know there are days I'm barely hanging on. So mm. yeah, show me that Joe Carter home run again. You know what I mean? Bring you know let Roberto oh. Alomar come play at my softball game. That'd be great. You should be squirting Gatorade down my throat. That, that's why I asked the question, right? I'm not saying it because we need to take a negative perspective. On the contrary, I'm thrilled beyond belief, tickled pink to go to the ballpark on Saturday to have a chance to meet scores of former Blue Jays that will be there. I just wonder, is, is management paying attention? You know, bo- both you, April, and, and you, Marshall, referred to uh, the reason that we're proud, that it was a baseball town. How much does the current front office leadership group, how acutely are, aware are they that this is now a, a significant drought? This is not four or five or eight years from a recent championship. This is a whole different generational shift to remind people of this generation now that, hey, once upon a time, the standard of excellence here was only about winning. Well, I'll I'll, I'll start. Um, I think they are aware um, because, as April mentioned earlier, you know, you had 2015, 2016. So, uh, and and the, the, if any, I think the Sky Dome those years were even louder, um, well, the Rogers Centers, we now call it, that were even louder than they were in the, the early days of the Sky Dome. It's a way less, it's a much younger crowd, it's a less corporate crowd. So I think they're aware. Um, I do think occasionally current management is a little bit tone deaf in the way they handle some of the history. For example, the, the, the Roy Halliday tragedy was, a, was an example of that. And um, I think they sometimes uh, go a little bit heavy on the, the MBA speak. But I think they are uh, sincere, and I do think that they are extremely competent, and I, I, I think that they do have the, the goal of, um, of, uh, of um, producing a winning product on the field. I, I, I actually uh, don't blame uh, them at all. I think, uh, in a sense, they are suffering uh, somewhat the legacy of the what I would call the absentee indifferent ownership that we had for most of the period um, after 1993, um, when Interbrew took over the uh, the baseball club almost in, in, inadvertently, and they just couldn't give a toss about them. And and Rogers, we you know I think there's um, at times they they still have this tendency to treat uh, the Blue Jays as a non-core asset, but they do seem to at one level recognize the value of the team and the uh, as far as the branding of its product goes. I don't even think you had a sense of that when uh, the the Belgians were owning the team. I don't think they they knew what they they were inheriting. And then um, you had a, a, a an ownership group after that that was just extremely mean in, in terms of constraining payroll. There was no sense of vision, no uh, planning, and 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 uh, you just got this great sense of indifference, which is I think is even worse than than anything at all. And I think that's the uh, latent fear that most people have today, having reached these new heights again of 2015 and 16. The concern is that we go back to this period of indifference uh, and mediocre baseball again, and I'm not sure that's the case. I think that these guys do have a plan. Um, I think they're executing it, and um, the 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 green shoots are starting to become much more apparent, um, although it probably will take another 18 months to two years before it comes to full fruition. And um, But they deserve credit for that. I think I, I, I do have confidence in them. 
Yeah, I'd just like to, you know, echo everything that was said. You know, in, in 2013, that, that was even a few years before winning happened. We went to the trade deadline knowing full well that the team, unless something drastic happened. So, you know, we, we went into the trade deadline needing to go one way or the other, and we, we stayed dormant. There was no moves. There was no selling. There was no buying. And by the end of the season, we, you know, quite a hefty amount of games out of it. Whereas this year, there's a plan, like, like that was said. There's a plan. There's a vision. They've taken the farm system from in the late 20s to the top five. You know, the future does look bright. And that's, that's what it's about now. Like, you don't want to lose, but if there's a plan for the losing, at least there's a plan. You know, people are tuning into AA and AAA games and wanting to see what Biggio, Vladdy, Bichette are doing. So um, the future is going to be exciting, and I'm sure there'll be another World Series in the next five to ten years. Wow. Yeah, I would concur with all that myself. I don't love that, uh, you know, the people that are at the top of this organization are the same people running me up on my phone and cable bill. But, you know, like they said, all the right pieces are where they should be. And, you know, more or less making the right decision. Um, it, it's hard to argue with where they're going. And I would only say that maybe we're a year late flipping this team. But I think if we had started this year, ago, you know, you could have gotten much better, um, you know, um, assets for, you know, a guy like Donaldson, for example, who is now probably going to be on a bridge here for a year or two or something. I don't even know. Like, I felt like that was a bit of a missed opportunity. But, you know, most of the part, I love Shapiro. He seems what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the one fault that they didn't start this a year earlier. And and the annoying thing about it is that Shapiro himself said that, um, you know, he, I think he put it as intellectually speaking, it would have been better to start this off after 2016. But we felt we owed it to the fans to um, give it one more shot. And um, I'm reminded of that comment, I think it's ascribed mostly to Sam Pollock, you know, that if you if you start listening to what the fans want, uh, pretty soon you'll be up in the seats joining them. So um, I wish that he had followed his instincts and actually um, moved a bit more aggressively. Politically, that might have been a, a, a difficult uh, thing to do. But look, the, the 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 action has been underway in a fairly dramatic fashion in the last few weeks, and um, I, if if any blame is to be ascribed right now, I think it, it goes above Shapiro. It's um, uh, people like Joe Natale, um, who you just keep the keep getting the sense when you hear him speaking to some of the the business analysts, speaking about the Rogers Group. You don't get the sense that. Uh, the Blue Jays as an uh, is an integral part of their organization, and you can also see that in the in the sort of half-hearted way they've approached the stadium renovation, which, which is something which is uh, I think would be an is an important signal to the fan base that yes we are trying to improve uh, the overall fan experience. I mean it's very very bad optics when you raise prices by 17 percent, but there's no. Um, that not only is there no improvement on the field, there's deterioration, but also that there's no improvement in the stadium. I mean, you've got a, a, a roof with holes in it. Um, there was leaks there the, the other night. And these are things that um, um, should be uh, fixed up. And then you have Chris Henderson pointing out that there's like two or three craft breweries uh, in, in the stadium right now. Very, very small cosmetic changes that can be made. And Shapiro for almost a year has been talking about the, the plans and the renovations that he has uh, in, in plan for the stadium, but he's been given no green light by ownership. So in that sense, I, I do 
think they need to um, do a little bit better job. Um, to quote what Peter Ravesi said many years ago, sell a little bit of sizzle even if you're not selling any steak. Well, certainly what I need to do is deliver this roundtable straight to Mark Shapiro so he can understand fully <laughs> why all of these points are, are very salient. No, I, I agree with you, Marshall. Um, but, but let's for a moment forget that we're living in the present where it's all dreary and a lot of misery and woe is permeating around us as we kind of are in transition. Let's step into my personal time machine, my TARDIS, if you will, and go back to 1993 and I want to start with you, Brian. What's the one thing that really stands out for you when you look back at that 93 team? When you think of how you felt, what life was like as a, as a, as a baseball experience in the city of Toronto, what's, what's the first thing you remember? Let's go around the table and get everyone's opinion. But just a strong belief, you know, in the team that for, you know, for the longest time we had no chance of competing, you know, and here we are stacked from top to bottom a uh, uh, rotation, you know, worthy of any team, uh, you know, a guy who can close, a guy who can set him up. Like, we just didn't have any missing pieces, which it's rare that you can, you know, strut around as a baseball fan, you know, especially in this city, Toronto, which is known for losing, you know, we're almost as bad as Cleveland some days. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I just remember an incredible confidence, not just in the team, but in the fans and, and, then, and then the repeat and everything, which is, it's uh, I'll always hold on to that feeling, and I think I jumped so high when Carter hit that home run, I damn near went <laughs> through the feeling. I just remember the commitment to excellence too, and and the fact that if there had to be a made a move made to get the team better, um, they the Pat Gillick was was able to do it, um, and was and 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 did so um, with the full cooperation of of ownership and. Uh, you know they they uh, uh, you know they had Winfield in '92. They replaced him with Molitor in '93. Getting um, Jack Morris was a was, was a great move. Um, and then um, players like um, the other thing I remember fondly, uh, just from a personal experience, is um, Devon White, who was probably my all-time favorite Blue Jay. I mean, I just loved watching him play defense. Um, I'm still bitter to this day that he had that. Um, uh, triple play, uh, you know, he, he made that tremendous catch and, and the, the triple play that was stolen away from him from a bad umpire's call, which would have been overturned if we had video replay in those days. But, you know, he was just an absolute joy to watch. Um, and that's along with the obvious people like Carter and Alomar um, and Tony Fernandez coming back to the team in 93 and being able to share in that glory as well. I thought that was great as well. Yeah, and on my end, I just remember it seemed like whenever a Blue Jay came to bat, there was a hit. Um, I just feel, I think it was 1993 where we, the Blue Jays let, like, their three players led the league in batting average. So that would have been, I guess, all the room. It just felt like they were always getting on base. And I, again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't that old, but I remember watching it with my dad and, oh, there, they got another win. They got another win. Oh, we got a win. Mm. And. Again, we I watched that World Series from the couch, and just like you were saying, I, I Dad and I both jumped out of the couch faster than uh, probably one of the best memories I have with my father. So, yeah, it was just a, a fun season, and uh, again, it 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 doesn't feel that long ago, but then again, does like I can't imagine if right now we had we would have three guys leading the league. I guess we'd feel like the Boston Red Sox right now, but uh, yeah, that, that that was yeah. a fun year. <laughs> No, no, that's extraordinary to think that a baseball team could have the top three hitters in the entire league on the on the very same team. And you know, Marshall, you talked about 
how Tony Fernandez returned. So there was a sentimental element to what was unfolding. In April, you mentioned Whamco, all the great hitters they had, and Brian, the expectation, the commitment to excellence. Can you really blame Blue Jays fans of today in the age group that experienced it back then, whether you were a baby boomer or a Gen Xer, to feel salty, to feel frustrated that once upon a time, this team outspent everyone and was prepared to do anything and everything to make the right moves, and, and in some cases, excessive moves. I mean, really, the contributions of a Ricky Henderson and a uh, Jack Morris tend to get overstated by the fact that their very presence changed the character of this team. I mean, really, when you think back, what an extraordinary conflux of baseball events to turn your city into a world-class championship, first Canadian city ever to win a World Series crown. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. I, I think... Nowadays, you know, prospects and trades are, are looked at a little differently. And I, to play devil's advocate, it's not like the Blue Jays don't have any sort of financial commitments. You know, we look at the team. Part of the reason the team isn't as exciting as it could be is a lot of the money is locked up on the DL right now with players that I won't point out specific or, you know, they're on a we know who those guys are. So there, there is money being put into the team. And I think if the right move needed to be made, even in trades, when you look at recently, we've taken on payroll to get a better player or a better prospect. I'm not too concerned on that end. But, but you're right. It did seem that in the early 90s, management did seem to do whatever it took. But it did also seem that there was different value placed on different things and things weren't being valued the same way as things are today. Yeah, you don't get um, the same kind of heists that, um, uh, say, Pat Killick did to um, to secure someone like uh, Devon White um, and some of those other trades he's, he made with the uh, Yankees uh, to get some people like, uh, you know, the, uh, like the, 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 from in the, um, the drafts that they, they had. The, the, the problem is that everyone with the onset of analytics and um, all the new metrics, it's much harder to make a, a trade where there's an obvious uh, winner and, and an obvious mm-hmm. loser or a real heist. Um, so you have to just, you know, stay analytically sharper ahead of the curve. And, you know, I think to their credit, the current ownership um, um, group uh, is doing that with the people they've got. Of course, uh, a lot of that geek speak doesn't um, really move the fan base, uh, especially for a game, in a game like baseball, which is, so much uh, is, is is predicated on nostalgia, and um, you know the, the the notion that this it's in the same game now that it was played basically a hundred years ago. So that doesn't sit easily. But um, you know I think that what a- a- April's point is right, and um, I I I still think that uh, you know they've got all that that it's it's an unfair comparison in some ways. But you do wish at times that the current ownership group at least gave a signal that they really cared about the baseball team, that it wasn't just a, a balancing item on a balance, on a big balance sheet. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, to some degree, people want too much too soon when it comes to making big deals and signing things. Like, I think in a lot, a lot of ways they have made a lot of right moves, like signing Curtis Banson this year to a flyer, you know, get, get a great value out of him while we're trying to reevaluate this team and, you know, you know, remanage our assets and, put ourselves in the best position to move forward. You know what I mean? There's no point in going out and signing someone big on free agency. We're just going to suck. You know what I mean? It's like putting $2,000 rims on a Honda Civic. 
I think you just got to be patient and, and, and make small moves now until you're ready, until you've got all your, your ducks in a row to actually grab those guys, those exciting guys, you know, your Verlander expects to help you, you know, push you over the top for the, the win. That's that's a, a very good point, Brian, that, especially because there's also something to be said in this era for the value of of reclamation projects, of, of finding uh, another team's trash and turning it into your treasure, so to speak. And it's ironic, isn't it, though, Marshall, that Devin White, uh, Devon White, rather, in many respects, was uh, the most successful reclamation project ever in the history of the franchise. He came to this team uh, as a somewhat undervalued, uh, underappreciated defensive expert that struck out 40% of the time, and yet working with that glorious hitting coach slash manager, Cito Gaston, he went from being... Uh, an afterthought fourth outfielder to an all-star. But, you know, you got to be lucky to be good and good to be lucky, I guess, when it comes to nostalgia. Yeah, that's right. And 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 I think that there, there's a fair bit of that right now. There's a uh, it's it's um, not easy often to um, sell high and 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 buy low, um, as we saw, for example, Josh Donaldson being a, a a good case of that, or even Jose Bautista when you know it would have made sense um, uh, to probably have traded him a, a, a year. Uh, um, Earlier than uh, we, uh, than um, you know, right after he had that great success. I mean, politically, it would have been impossible. But you know, there's that old line by Billy Bean, you know, that it's always better to trade a, a player a year too early than a year too too late. As we're seeing with uh, some of these guys right now, with uh, Donaldson and uh, obviously Osuna for different reasons. But um, you know, I I I I, I do think that. Uh, um, you know, you've got to be much more. The team has to will have to be much more aggressive going forward and finding those reclamation projects and and having the discipline uh, to sell them off um, uh, for a better return um, if they if they can restore some value. Ken Giles is, for example, a, a, a prominent example of that right now. Um, you know, he he looks like damaged goods, but if he if he can be if he has his career revived and becomes a viable closer again next year. Then maybe he he's a um, he's a good guy to sell off uh, next summer, um, depending on what they get. The I guy who I think's been the best at that has been Brian Cashman at the Yankees. Oh sure, absolutely, absolutely. Not just in finding uh, reclamation projects, but especially like you mentioned in in uh, buying low and then selling high, and then somehow ending up with Torres. I mean, there are extraordinary <laughs> things that happen in this game that just make you shake your head. Um, I just realized I'm going to get roasted on social media if I release this episode claiming that Devon White was the greatest reclamation project when I think we can all agree it's Jose Bautista. I mean, you, you pick up the Pittsburgh Pirates utility infielder and suddenly he's hitting 54 home runs. Uh, there's your answer. Let's go around the table. I want to start with you, April. Give me the one player from that 1993 team that you wish you could take back with you, again, in some kind of time machine. To help this year's or this future edition of this baseball team, what kind of player do the Blue Jays need to get over the hump and get back to their winning ways from that roster? Ooh, one player. So Give for me this one that year's you really team, would take with you because you're going to break the laws of time and space. So come on, if you're going to do that, you got to take the best Blue Jay with you. Well, the most valuable player was probably Alomar, but I wouldn't mind a guy hitting 363. So. <laughs> ah, okay, I'll, I'll take I'll take Alomar. I mean, he, I've also met him, and he is one of the nicest guys I and players I probably have ever met. Uh, so let's go, Alomar. He was a stud defensively and a stud offensively, so uh, you can't go wrong there for sure. <laughs> what about you, Brian? Who would you choose? 
Well, you know, to be honest with you, up until a few weeks ago, Ari, my answer would have been uh, instead is Kelly Grover. Who once visited me in the hospital? I shit you back. And really? Now I, I'm afraid you I actually to visited? That oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. My I swear goodness. to God, while I was having my tonsils taken out at, at uh, I think it was ten or eleven years old, and uh, like my other great hero, Bill Cosby, those memories have been tainted. Uh, so I'm on the fence, really. I don't know. Give me pep orders. <laughs> This is what happens when I add a comedian to the round table. I haven't had the pleasure of doing that. I think I think I'm just going to change the format of the show and become a completely different show. But uh, no, seriously, who who would you take who would you take as your as your as your choice for for the Blue Jay to bring back with you from that team that you admire? That I admire, okay. Um, well, I don't know so many guys to pick from. Like Roberto again, it seems like the obvious choice. I mean, I, like I don't think I don't think you can go wrong with Roberto. But uh, what, is, no, what do you I mean, think about, you about Paul Pod Molitor? Borders? Borders you know, you yeah. Borders we will accept a, that answer. Ari, you can't yeah. you can't not accept his answer. That was what he said. He wanted Pat Porter. Yeah. You I can't take no that away from him. I had no idea that April Weitzman drafted the rules of my round table. I'm going to have to go back and check, check the Fourth Amendment to see what's happening with the Constitution there. But, no, that, that, that's a good answer. And, by the way, he will be at the Rogers Center on Saturday, guys. Pat Borders. There was Brian, wasn't there a time that he was missing in action and people thought he disappeared somewhere to some kind of cult off Madagascar or something like that? He completely disappeared off the globe for a short while there. I think that's Dave Chappelle you're thinking about, buddy. Well, that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> Not familiar with that story. Exactly, exactly. No, no, but it's true. He went missing for a while. Sometimes you just got to step away after you're an MVP in the playoffs. What, what about you, Marshall? Who would you grab from that 90-15? Bring back with you? Well, well, I did say Devon White was my all-time favorite Blue Jay, but, you know, Kevin Pillar, one of the reasons I like him is because he, he does, at least in the field, um, um, occasionally provide uh, me reminders of what I love so much about uh, Devo. So I'll, I'll go with a, uh, a different uh, choice. Um, watching this flammable bullpen in operation right now, I can't help thinking that, boy, it would be nice to have Dwayne Ward back in, um, um, uh, in, in, the, in that 1993 season. He was pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, he blew out his arm shortly after that, but that year he was as good as gold. And, uh, of course, I also have a, a real soft spot for Tom Henke from the 92 team. But, um, you know, if I've got to choose one from 93 to stick with the rules, um, I'll go with Ward. <laughs> That was uh, that was an excellent answer, especially considering the uh, bittersweet circumstances of knowing that he channeled some kind of baseball god serum or something that gave him <laughs> arguably the greatest bullpen season I've ever witnessed. And we've we've had some decent relievers in the history of this franchise, and you named Hanky as an example. But what Dwayne Ward did with his slider and his off-speed pitches that year, it was like a magician. It was like a marionette, a puppet master with the batters, and at any given time he could get them out. I want to ask one last question and go around the horn. I'm going to start with you, Brian. One of the things that I've been hearing lately from a lot of people who like to be curmudgeonly and cynical by nature, which is like 90% of the city's population <laughs> these days, is, uh, is that the Blue Jays owe their success largely on the part of going out and getting mercenaries, getting a kind of uh, who's who of villains that used to prevent them from getting over the hump. Of course, Jack Morris, Dave Stewart, Henderson, Paul Molitor, uh, the great Dave Winfield, whom we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, and David Cohn. 
Should that matter Should, in your perception of that team that they had to go out and get a band of samurai to basically finally take over the kingdom? Or do you view that as maybe what made that so that experience so unique in the first place was that it featured a little bit of the old and a lot of the new? Yeah, I think, I think these people are off the rocker. Let me start with that. Um, you know, <laughs> how teams are built, you know, little pieces at a time. Uh, and the, you know, getting good players as opposed to bad players has always been the quick road to success uh, on my life journey. So uh, I think that... Uh, I think that's just the way you do things. Like as for our conversation a moment ago, that you know you find those uh, those projects, you find those character guys, and then and you finish it all off with uh, some whipped cream and cherries. A la, you know, um, I love to say Troy Tulowitzki and Russell Martin, but you know what I mean. Well, listen, that, that's one way of putting it, and I agree. I mean, you got to do whatever it takes to win. What about you, April? Was there ever a, a kind of concern that? Uh, they had to resort to if you can't beat them, then get them to join you, and then hopefully everything works out. Even though there were some steep prices paid to get some of these players, who can forget Jeff Kent and his 15 years of productivity at third base lost for two and a half months of David Cohn? Yeah, I mean, like what was said, I think you need the mix of, you know, aka what management today calls veteran presence and. And, you know, you go into a season or you even go into a trade deadline looking for those top pieces. And so I don't think any price is, is as long – I mean, they won the World Series. It doesn't matter what the price is whatsoever. I think they probably would have paid more than than Kent and, and all the guys. So, you know, that's that's baseball. I mean, you're going you're gonna to make some moves that are going to really work out and you're going to make some moves that, that aren't. Um, you know, Ricky Henderson to me – I I actually forgot he played for the Blue Jays. I always picture him wearing the athletics gear, and that's probably because I mm. was younger at the time. But he wasn't a, a gentleman that that I remember playing playing in those ugly powder blue uniforms. Um, but uh, yeah, they're not going to wear powder blues on the weekend, are they? Well, I'm I'm still getting over what you just said. I think you may have heard Brian in particular, who those powder blues were like his pajamas as a kid. He's probably thinking, what on earth? It's a onesie. I'm so sorry. Brian. I'm so sorry. It's a onesie. I hope we can still be friends. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, they just they didn't do it for me. I'm not sure why. I have one. I have a jersey. Uh, maybe it's not my color, so that's that's my it's, it's that's my fear for them. But. Mm-hmm. It's funny because Marshall was probably thinking, I remember Ricky Henderson in pinstripes more than I do in an Oakland A's uniform. Ah. No, no, no. I, I remember Ricky uh, with the with the A's. Uh, he used to torment the Blue Jays as well. In fact, uh, oh, he, was, he, he, uh, he was the leadoff guy in that, uh, that famous uh, inning with, uh, with, with, Car- with Carter's home run and uh, got on base, drew a walk, and did exactly what he always did. Uh, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't bat particularly well. As I recall, in that those few months that he was with the Blue Jays, but um, he was money in that game, and um, you know, I, uh, as far as the other point, I think April's 100% right. You make a trade and you win a World Series, bingo, you win that trade. I mean, they don't win the World Series in '92 without David Cohn and Jeff Kent. Um, you know, he played mostly played uh, second rather than third, and um, as I recall, the Blue Jays had a pretty good guy at second base, um, so. Um, I don't have any, and 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 I don't really think that there was uh, this the, the team was particularly mercenary. I mean, I think Gillick made some very very bold acquisitions. I mean, Carter and Alomar being 
the most famous ones, which again changed the character of the team completely. But gosh, uh, that was great. They won uh, two World Series in a row. I mean, the the only time I would ever have an issue with them getting a a so-called mercenary is uh, if you know if you had an Aroldis Chapman or you know sadly a Roberto Osuna type of situation. I don't ever want the team to be in a position where they have to defend acquiring a player because he's done something horrific uh, off off the, in, in the uh, outside the baseball stadium. So, um, but. Um, I don't get the sense with this kind of, with this management that they would do something like that. So um, you, you hope that this thing has its that um, you know it has its limits. But as far as being an annoying uh, player to play against, uh, who may have been you know a bit of a cuss on the field or a real rival, sure. Listen, if if, um, uh, if Darren O'Day used to hate uh, Jose Bautista's gut, but if they ever acquired him as a relief pitcher, I'd say great. You know, uh, he can torment uh, the other side just as he used to do to us. Well, and it's interesting that a lot of these names, like Morris and Stewart and Henderson, were not exactly, you know, fellows with halos over their heads. They had their own share of controversies. Paul Molitor had troubles with cocaine in early in his career that nearly derailed his his whole uh, his whole baseball career. Dave Winfield yeah. uh, led an assault on seagulls and 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 infuriated animal lovers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one's a little bit unfair. I I was actually at that game, believe it or not, and and and, and it, he really did not do, do that. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna def- defend Dave uh, on that one. In fact, I'm gonna defend him. Period. Because I met I had the pleasure of meeting him one time in Japan. Uh, he was just coming out of a hotel when I was living there, and uh, um, we we talked about that '92 team. He he was a wonderful guy. So. Um, um, I, I will not, never say anything. And he was a perfect guy for the 92 team. He, 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 he set them on the right track, provided leadership right from day one. So, again, if those are the kind of people you're adding to your team, I'm all for in, in favor of it. Well, and to defend well, Paul Mulder, I'm pretty sure everybody was on coke in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a world problem. Man, that, that it also probably explains the, the powder blue uniforms. A lot of strange things were going on. <laughs> <in fact. laughs> Let's uh, let's go around the horn and close off this excellent round table. I'm going to open up uh, an opportunity for some shameless plugs. Talk about what you're up to and where you can be found on social media. Let's go Brian, April, and then Marshall. Um, man, I'm at, at Brian Hatch uh, on Twitter, at Brian underscore on Instagram. And, um, just, uh, I'm all over the internet. Just type in Brian Hatch. I'm going to get back to you. Doing shows <laughs> all the time. Come check me out. And chatting five. Thank you. Thank you. I'll give that podcast a big plug later myself. You know that. It's, it's a great, great source of entertainment, and you should definitely check it out. Yeah, and again, I'm I'm April Weitzman. I'm on Twitter at AlleyCat17, or you can just be cool and follow my cat, who is still the biggest Bautista lover, and his name on all the social media channels is Jose Bautista. <laughs> That's right. I've, I've, and of course, I've heard of, of him. And uh, I'm amazed at just how popular animals are on Twitter. I've never understood it. It's just one of those yeah, things. Yeah, cat, cats rule the internet. That's the one thing that uh, he and I have found. So Beautiful. What about you, Marshall? <laughs> well, uh, my stuff gets posted on the alternate. Uh, it's, it has nothing to do with sports, sadly. It's, uh, it's all to do with um, economics and politics. Uh, so you can... Uh, um, read, uh, torture yourself with that sort of stuff if you, if you need a cure for insomnia. And then I'm on on Twitter uh, fairly regularly, usually corresponding with you, Ari, but uh, at, at Mauerback is, is, is my Twitter handle. So uh, you can get me out of place. 
ladies and gentlemen, this was a phenomenal roundtable. I'm really glad you took the time to to join me this evening. We've been speaking with comic actor and host of the Chatting Practice podcast, Brian Hatt, the former digital marketing manager with the Blue Jays, April Weitzman, and market analyst and research associate at the Levy Institute, Marshall Auerbach. Thanks for joining the podcast.